Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. This is called uh, Singularity by Mary Howie. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed or food or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom or home alone pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. Remember? There was no nature. No them, no tests to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up to what we were when we were ocean. And before that, to when sky was earth and animal was energy and rock was liquid, and stars were space, and space was not at all. Nothing. Before we came to believe humans were so important, before this awful loneliness. Can molecules recall it, what once was, before anything happened? No I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun. Only a tiny, tiny dot brimming with is, 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 is. All, everything, home. <clears throat> Marie Howey was, uh, well, she's still alive, but she was a state poet for New York in 2012, and she wrote this poem a few weeks after Stephen Hawking's death in 2018. 
of course, he who proposed the concept of singularity, you know, that moment in which the universe began, at least as we know it now. Buddhism would say that before this universe, there was just another one. And so, of course, this poem is speaking about that time before anything was. But it's really speaking of this moment as well. And this one. This is, is, is. At this moment in which all, in which everything is home. And that's what I would like to, to speak about, you know, that finding home or coming home in this now, in this now here, as a fellow teacher and writer described, nowhere, now here. And I've, I've quoted before the book of 24 philosophers, you know, where God is described as a circle whose center is everywhere and its circumference is nowhere. And that is really what this moment is like. A limitless, all-encompassing now. A tiny, tiny dot brimming with is. Is, is. And I've told the story of another poet, Margaret Gibson. She once gave an interview where she was describing that one night she was standing on her porch and she looked up at the stars and all of a sudden thought, what if there's nothing? And she says in that moment, her mind stopped. Everything was suddenly still and empty. And then she freaked out. Because if there's nothing, then what does that mean about me? What does it mean about the world? And she was about six when she asked this question. And then to reassure herself, she thought, well, that's ridiculous because who's asking? Right? Who's wondering? That proves there has to be something. And she said, just like that, all life came rushing back. With words, with thought, she brought everything into being. Let me repeat that. With thought, with words, she brought everything into being. Do you see? In the moment before, when there was nothing, in that moment, which is this moment, this place, there is no I. There is no them, there's no beginning, no end. There's no suffering, no end to suffering. Or as the Heart Sutra says, there's no suffering, no cause of suffering, no extinguishing, no path, no wisdom, and no gain. I guess you could say that in one sense, the Heart Sutra is all about singularity. That moment in which there is no need for anything, not even the path. And it says, you know, no gain, no wisdom and no gain, no gain, and thus the Bodhisattva lives prajna paramita, with no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear. 
And I've always, um, I was always struck by that line, you know, from the beginning, even when I didn't understand anything at all about it, that it was saying no gain, there's no wisdom, there's no, none of these things, no wisdom, no gain, and thus the Bodhisattva lives Prashna Paramita, right? It's because the Bodhisattva recognizes this centerless, borderless circle, that they have no hindrance and therefore no fear. Because this is, that is. Thus, right? Like that. And that is our home. That is home with a capital H, the place from which everything is born. And Prajna Paramita uh, is depicted usually as female, perhaps not unlike Sophia, uh, wisdom in Greek is also female. And Prajna Paramita is also called the mother of all Buddhas, the womb of all Buddhas. And where do you think that is? Who do you think that is? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live without fear? A fear of death or of dying, fear of loss, fear of pain, fear of the other, fear of the unknown. What would it be like to have no fear of being judged, of falling short, of not being loved? What would it be like to really have no hindrance in the mind? To be able to rest completely in who we are, where we are, as we are. To rest into our aloneness. Yet one more poet, David White, he said, to rest into our aloneness, inhabiting our bodies as a beautiful unspoken question rather than a fraught and never-ending explanation. To inhabit our bodies, so not as an explanation, it's this and this and this, and therefore not that and that and that and that. That distinction, that division from which all conflict arises. And to understand that our being actually needs no, no explanation needs no categorization and all the trouble that come from them. But it's really an unspoken, beautiful, open-ended question. What is this? How is this? And what's the, the best, the, the goodest, relationship between this and that. I just finished reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And, you know, a few years back, she won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting. She worked for several newspapers, um, 
most notably the New York Times. And she became widely known for her book, her first book, The Warmth of Other Suns. And that's, um, it, it chronicles the great migration right, of black Americans who moved out of the South and uh, up North and to the Midwest, really wanting to escape racism. And she describes, you know, through, through personal narratives, just how the country changed, given that great migration. I have not read that book. I was working with someone who mentioned uh, caste, and I was curious, and so I, I bought it and read it recently, and I just finished it yesterday. And the premise, I mean, very, very simply stated, is that the current uh, racial, social hierarchy in the United States is really a caste system, not unlike that of India and of Nazi Germany. And it is um, exquisitely researched, and she's not the first person to, to make these parallels. In fact, she draws on, on quite extensive research, although apparently she's gotten quite a bit of criticism for, for proposing this theory. And, you know, she says that although there are a number of, of pillars that support caste, um, I think actually that it's fair to say that probably the strongest one or, or the one that most drives that engine and that keeps it running is fear. Right, in this case, primarily, white folks fear of losing our place, losing our power, losing our comfort, fear of losing our supremacy. And then her further argument stated very lightly at the back of the book is that the previous presidency and all the recent Supreme Court rulings and all the mounting restrictions to women's bodily autonomy, that really they have one purpose, to defend whiteness and to increase the birth rate of white people who are terrified of becoming a minority. Because I believe there was a, a census that predicted, but I think it was 2027, we would be in fact a minority. And so all of this really to assuage the fear of those who think they'll lose what they have, right? who believe that we can hold what we possess and we can control it and we can keep it for as long as we need. And that that is a good way to live. And so I do think of this, you know, before and after reading the book, I think of this teaching that says that Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, was doing the Prashnaparamita, doing the perfection of wisdom. And notice that the Sutra doesn't say he was having wisdom, he was attaining wisdom, he was cultivating wisdom, practicing wisdom. It's interesting, it says he was doing this excellent transcendent quality. He was being wisdom, he was living wisdom. Avalokiteshvara being the, the male manifestation of Kuan Yin. 
that doing this, embodying wisdom, Avalokiteshvara liberates his mind and is free of fear. And so, doing so, he said home in his body. He said home in his mind. He said home in the world. He's not afraid of losing ground, of losing face. Avalokiteshvara, and I think, you know, any bodhisattva understands that every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you, as Mary Howie said. This was true before that first moment, and it is true now, that the one person's gain is not another person's lack and never was. And I think that is such a big part of, of coming home for us human beings, being at home, is, is to know very deeply, very deeply, that we're safe, that we have enough and that we are enough, and that there's nothing we lack. And so home really is a place of rest, right? A place of refuge. A place when, in a sense, we can hunker down and do the work of coming back to ourselves, even though we never really left. Norm mentioned the work of perfecting ourselves. And so it's, you know, we start from perfection, as I often repeat, but the practice is to see that, and in that is the perfecting, if you will. And so home is where we, Zen practitioners certainly, where we go when we sit down, when we cross our legs, or not, when we lower our eyes, when we quiet our minds. And home is also that which we find when we get a little quiet, we get a little still. Because this is the place where we realize we don't have to hide. We don't have to test ourselves or others. We certainly don't have to divide. We don't have to win. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid of losing. And so that means we can put all of our energy, all of our enthusiasm, all of our effort into being who we are which is already hard enough, given delusion, right? Given the kleshas, given all the obstacles that we encounter on our way to living. Home is, is, is kind of like gathering the troops and bringing them here where the whole thing is happening. You know that race, the Tough Mudder? It started in England a few years ago, a number of years ago. It's a mud and obstacle race. And you know, you have to do things like jump into a dumpster filled with ice and crawl through a field of mud, through electrified wires, 
run through fire, you know, things like that. And I thought, you know, we should create like a bodhisattva tough mother, where you have to like go stay with your parents for two weeks and practice not raising your voice even once. <laughs> you have to sit in a traffic jam for two hours with no AC, and you have to practice patience. Or maybe you have to sit and watch Fox News and practice not getting angry. And these are just the little ones. You know, these are the low-level obstacles. You can practice for death and dying. You can practice being with pain. You can practice moving through a breakup that tears up your heart. Because this is the stuff of our lives anyway. So why not train for that? And I said this to someone recently who, being new to Buddhism, um, just needed a little, a little reframing and was having a difficult interaction with someone. And I said, think of this as a field of practice. Think of this as, as a, a, an opportunity to train your mind. And I saw when the thing just clicked in his mind, he was like, oh, all of a sudden, instead of an obstacle, they saw possibility and a challenge, something they could rise up to meet, maybe something they could actually even be excited about. Coming home, being home, finding home. I think also we could think of it as the, the logic of appropriateness as opposed to the logic of consequence. You know, there are psychologists who um, use these terms to describe essentially what we base our actions on. Right? So when we act, many of us follow what is called the logic of consequence. We decide what to do based on what we think will produce the best results. Right? So for example, if someone is deciding whether to switch careers, they will look at whether staying or going will, will give them money, security, prestige, and they will try to maximize the good, which sounds you know, very sensible. What, what will give me the most of what I want? And that's what I'll do. By contrast, the law of appropriateness helps us to act based on our own sense of ourselves. So it's like asking, what would a person like me do? What would I do? You know, people use this all the time. What would Buddha do? What would Jesus do? What would I do? Given the person that I am, what would I do in this situation? And so, if I'm a person who doesn't want or is not willing to live in fear, then why don't I choose those actions that will be in line with fearlessness? If I don't want to live a life of impatience, of dissatisfaction, of anxiety, why don't I choose those actions that will help me to be that person? 
And so one is, is outward oriented and the other one is inward oriented. In that sutra is called the Great Discourse, um, the Great Discourse on the Lion's Roar. There's like 10 powers of the Tathagata, the Awakened One. And among them is like it basically understanding what is possible and what is impossible. Understanding the world and the various elements in it. Understanding beings and their inclinations. And so, you know, really, when we start practicing, we understand more and more, this is pain, this is pleasure. This is how I avoid, this is how I hold on. This is my idea about the world, not the world itself. This is my projection of you, not who you really are. But we just start to see more clearly. Oh, I'm getting caught up in a fantasy. I'm getting caught up in an idea, but is it so? Is it really so? Oh, I'm projecting into the future. Okay, what is happening right now, in this moment? I feel like there's something wrong with me. But I hear that I'm already perfect, that I'm already whole. So how, how is that? And so really what's happening is the, the more we practice, the more we are inhabiting ourselves as that beautiful question. We're not so quick to know what we think we know. We're willing to consider the possibility that maybe, maybe we can be free. And so from these powers of the Tathagata, which I did not list, all of them, the one who's awake has four kinds of intrepidity. That's a great word. They have four kinds of intrepidity, which are essentially that they're awake, that they're free of obstacles or taints, the sutra says, that they recognize what those obstacles are and that they've put an end to suffering. And that makes them fearless. Very simply, they know who they are and how to live their life with no hindrance in the mind. And when they encounter a hindrance, they meet it. Thus, they have no fear and they can roar the lion's roar. And so, you know, I can choose to stay in my career, or I can choose to switch, but I will choose not based on what I will get, but based on who I am, or who I want to be, what is more in line with that one who is awake. And I said one is external, one is internal, but the, the, this, this, this power actually claims power where it belongs. So this is just like the process of becoming free. 
this logic of appropriateness, of becoming more ourselves, more at home with who we are. As we are in this very moment with all of our stuff, all of our messiness, to think not what's expected of me, what is everybody else doing, not even what's the right thing to do, but what does a person like me do? How do I want to live my life? And so to end, David White again. And I think I've said in the past, you know, he's a Zen practitioner. And so I think he understands the power, the love, the possibility inherent in coming home, inherent in that stillness and silence. And so this is just a little bit of uh, a poem. In one with no company but a house, a garden, in our own well-peopled solitude, entering the silences and chambers of the heart to start again. Huh, that's a little bit too, bear with me, that's too short. Let me give you a little bit more of it. There's not just this house around me, but the arms of a fierce but healing world. Not just this line I write, but the innocence of an earned forgiveness flowing again through hands made new with writing. And a man with no company but his house, his garden, and his own well-peopled solitude, entering the silences and chambers of the heart to start again. And this is from a poem called The House of Belonging. In a practice that is filled with paradoxes, I think perhaps the biggest one is that we have to go searching. And often, I, I, I would, would venture to say that for most of us, if not all of us, sometimes that search ranges wide. You know, maybe we try different paths, or maybe we stop and start. You know, we start sitting when we're very young, or somebody gives us an Alan Watts book. You know, we, we pick at it, and then we put it on the shelf. We forget, and maybe 10 years later, 20 years later, we think, what, what was that Zazen thing I read about? Maybe we start again. But that sometimes it takes a long time to return. To come home to a place that we actually truly never left. But we can't know that until we go searching. Thank you for listening. 
if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.